You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to This is Oklahoma podcast. My name is Mike Hearn. I'm your host. And today I have a guest co-host with me, Mr. Gavin Rath. Gavin's here today. Uh, to help me interview a very special guest. Uh, he's a huge fan, and I um, will definitely bring some great questions and, and more context to me not knowing certain things, because I'm not... Uh, you'll understand when you, when you find out who our guest is, but yeah, if you know me, this is uh, this is not my field. Um, I'm a golfer, not a fighter. So that being said, our, our host today um, is an American humanitarian worker and professional mixed martial arts, currently in the heavyweight division and a Bellator MMA um, please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Justin Wren. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, I really appreciate your time. Gavin, really appreciate your time too. Um, no I'm excited to dive into the stories. You've done some great things and continue to do great things, you know, outside of the cage. Um, but before we get into that, you tell us a little bit about kind of like your background, you know, where you grew up and, and how you got into fighting at first. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be on This Is Oklahoma, and I'm actually a Texan, so uh, uh, below the Red River, and would always have rivals growing up wrestling uh, against the Okies, and yeah, uh, growing up, uh, actually how I found the sport of fighting was I grew up getting actually very heavily bullied, and my childhood dream became to become a fighter, because whenever I found the UFC, UFC tapes 2 through 9 or 2 through 11, I remember spending my entire allowance that I had saved up for a BB gun, and I spent it all on the UFC, because uh, at 13 years old, I was clinically diagnosed with depression, uh, sat at the lunch table by myself, got pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk spit wads or food or fist, and um, just, uh, yeah, whenever I came across the UFC, my initial thought was these guys don't get bullied. Um, and then when I turned it over, I saw sumo versus boxing <laughs> and karate versus taekwondo or uh, American wrestling or folk style wrestling, Greco freestyle versus judo and these different sports all coming together. And I loved the human chess match of it. Um, so I fell in love with the sport that became my childhood dream. Um, and then I was very blessed to have two Okies as my uh, high school wrestling coaches, um, Kenny Monday and Kendall Cross, an assistant coach with Ty Wilcox. All of those guys were multiple-time All-Americans from Oklahoma State. They were national champions from Oklahoma State, and uh, Kenny and Kendall were both Olympic gold medalists. Um, so, yeah, man, that's uh, where my wrestling roots came from. Even though I was rivals with the Okies, I was coached by Okies, and that's why I was able to beat the Okies. Um, and now I am an Okie. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I love this state. Um, have have really enjoyed it. Once I got here about a year and a half ago, um, it was uh, it's just felt like home. Um, actually, probably more like a year and eight months now. It just Oklahoma is home for me. Uh, and yeah, the sport of wrestling is so rich here. Uh, its roots. Um, and then there's a, an amazing jujitsu guy uh, that that brought me here to Oklahoma. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been really great to, to get to know the state more and more. Yeah. It definitely welcomes people very well. Yeah. Um, the myself, big friend. Gavin, every, yeah. Gavin's <laughs> you from Michigan, you know, me being from Wales, it's, there's nothing like it. Um, and I got like very, very taken back by it. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing state, amazing people. And, and that's why we're still here. 
and I'm yeah. sure you're going to be here for a long time. Yeah, absolutely, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoy the state. Yeah. And, you know, touched on the, uh, the fighter that brought you here, uh, the guy that you train with or trains you, um, outside of fighting, obviously, you know, you have your, you know, the charity that you work for, but you had a pretty, pretty good fighting career. And like I said, you know, your shoulder injury right now and you're getting back into it. But, um, tell us a little bit about the fighting career and some of the, you know, the ups and downs of that and, and the stories and the good times. Yeah. So, uh, my first fight was actually here at the farmer's market. Uh, what a place. places, right? <laughs> what a place. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Oklahoma city farmer's market was my first fight. And, uh, I, um, was supposed to be cornering. I was supposed to be coaching and my fighter, uh, had a, a deep, deep staph infection, uh, into his femur bone. Uh, and so they thought there was even a potential that he would lose his leg. Um, so he was on IVs, he was in the hospital. Uh, he, um, there's still, I think a divot in his quad, um, from, from where the staph infection was eating away at the muscle. And so I went and I was a wrestler, I was a wrestling coach and I went to the pre-fight press conference and the weigh-ins and I said how my buddy wasn't going to be able to be there. Um, his opponent was a kickboxer, uh, and had his own gym and, uh, had no ground game though. And, started talking trash saying that, uh, my buddy would have just ended up in the hospital the next night instead of uh, a day earlier and, uh, or a day later. And so, um, yeah, uh, the promoter came up to me and said, I can see the steam coming out of your ears. Uh, if you want an opportunity to shut this guy up, uh, we'll give it to you. Um, and I told him, uh, what do you mean? I'm a wrestler. I'm not a fighter. He goes, I've seen you wrestle and this guy's a kickboxer. The chess match of it is if you stay standing, you will get knocked out. But if you take him to the ground, you will beat him up. And so, um, I was just like, wow. Uh, so I took the fight on a day's notice, um, and, uh, got in there. And I think it was about a minute and 16 seconds where I just took him down and, uh, kind of just threw some punches until the ref pulled me off and I got hooked, hooked on, uh, uh, MMA. I love the sport. And there's a guy here named Rafael Lovato Jr. And he is the best American to ever compete in jiu-jitsu, the most accomplished American. I think he has 11 world medals and six of them are gold. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that's, that's, uh, if, if anything's wrong there, it's my, my math. Um, but, uh, <laughs> there's probably more than what I'm saying. And, uh, you stop counting after so many. Yeah. I don't yeah. think he keeps counting. Doesn't he's matter just, anymore. he's just the man. Yeah. Even though he walks around in incredible humility, um, he's a true martial artist. And that's what I love about him is, uh, he's not a fighter. He's a martial artist first. Um, and so I'm learning that path now. Uh, I was always a fighter first, martial artist second. Now that's flip flopped. And, uh, I do love the, the, the humility, the discipline, the respect, the, um, incredible character, uh, attributes that you develop and build through the sport of martial arts. Mm-hmm. So and your first opponent was a true bully. Yeah. So I wonder how that might have you know, got your juices flowing, just that aspect. There may not have been a MMA career for you had it not been that that guy was bullying your pal. Yeah. That's interesting. That is interesting. I've never even really thought of that, but um, those are the guys I like to fight are the bullies. Um, They, 
they're rare in our sport. Right. Um, the reason is I would say that 50% of kids that get into martial arts get into martial arts because they're bullied in some form or fashion. Um, and then the ones that get to the top of the sport of, of fighting, um, if you look into their background, probably six, seven, eight, maybe even nine out of 10 of them, uh, had been bullied. They weren't the bully. They, they were bullied. Um, normally the bully is the one that he can be good at the beginning of the fight, but, uh, and he can be good when he's able to be the bully. But whenever someone stands up to the bully, normally they start to cave in. Um, so that was kind of this case for my first fight was, uh, uh, he was definitely a, a bully, but once you took him out of his world, um, he didn't know what to do. He was a fish out of water and he, he actually quit on himself. So, um, I think a lot of bullies sometimes that's, that's what they'll do. They'll, they'll end up quitting on themselves. Well, you were on perhaps the, the most popular season of the ultimate fighter ever, uh, thanks to a certain internet backyard brawling star. Um, by the name of Kimbo Slice, but um, so how did you get onto the show? What was that journey like? And yeah. Was it just because of your record, or were there other elements that took place? Yeah, I think I was uh, six or seven and one at that time, yeah. um, and I had uh, and the fight I lost was I had a, a flu at the time. I fought with a fever of one hundred two, wow. um, and uh, and the ref stopped the fight because I was in between rounds and I threw up actually. <laughs> And uh, so they called it a TKO, a technical knockout, but it's because you can't throw up during a fight. And so I threw up in between rounds and they stopped the fight. So, um, but uh, yeah, so how I got on the show was they were looking at me for a pay-per-view fight. Um, And then the Ultimate Fighter heavyweights came about. Um, A thousand guys tried out for it. I had a fight at the time of the tryouts, so I couldn't go to the tryouts. Um, but they were watching my fight and so, uh, fought and won. Um, there was three or four guys that didn't try, try out that got on the show. It was Kimbo, like you said, mm-hmm. Kimbo Slice, um, rest in peace, buddy. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Roy Nelson, Brendan Schaub and myself, we were the only ones that didn't try out. Um, and then, uh, there was Matt Mitrione, uh, Marcus Jones. I mean, a lot of other fighters that, that, that went through the tryout process and so, yeah, I was one of the fortunate ones that didn't have to do that. Um, but, yeah, the house was crazy. It was six weeks of uh, – or eight weeks of filming um, and fighting and living in the same house with uh, all the opponents that you're you're going to be fighting uh, one of them sometime. And so you get to push each other's buttons and everything else, or at least they try to push yours, and you just try to fly under the radar. So at least that's what I did. It was the house, was it just miserable? The it experience was miserable. Free, was it? Even though you're living in paradise. Um, yeah. It was the hottest summer in uh, 20 years being in Vegas. And the producers would mess with us by uh, turning off the AC every now and then. Oh, and they would say that it was broken. Uh, and they would get out of guy acting like he's trying to fix it. And really, uh, one of the kickboxers went over and kicked off the lockbox. Uh, that was over the AC and just turned it right back on. And it was like, ah, these stinkers, they're, they're messing with us. Mick Sweeney. Turn it off. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they, they did some other stuff too. They turned off the water on us for two days, which two days doesn't seem like that long without water, but, uh, um, it is in hot, hot, uh, summer and then 16 guys living in the same house. Can't wash clothes, can't wash dishes. So, um, after one meal, you need to, 
you know, wash all the sets of dishes. Um, and we weren't, we weren't able to do that for two days. So they were just doing certain stuff to like mess with us. That way, uh, there would be more drama for the show. Oh, sure. To create a reaction. Yeah. Sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> stuff you don't see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I never would have heard that. I wonder if that happens in the Big Brother house as well. It's not I'm must. sure they do it stuff. Must. I'm sure they do stuff. Uh, because I, I, I didn't think, it was true, but before I went on there, I had multiple guys reach out to me once they found out. I mean, this was like hours before I'm walking uh, into the studio or, or onto the show set, and I'm getting text messages or tweets from people, private messages saying, hey, man, they're going to mess with you. Just just know that going in. Um, mm. People that have won the Ultimate Fighter show, they're going to mess with you. Yeah. Uh, so another thing they did was before I fought Big Country um, – I put in my grocery list and I had a certain regimen of food that I like to eat the day of a fight and the day before a fight. Um, well, the day before the fight, they gave me all these uh, excuses of why my grocery list isn't there. And then they bring everything there the night before I see everything. It's in the refrigerator. And then someone in the middle of the night moved all my food. Uh, but it wasn't my opponent. Um, it was someone on on staff, someone on set. Um, that that had removed the steel cut oats, the blueberries, the agave nectar, um, the egg whites, everything that I wanted uh, were all gone. The avocados, like uh, none of it was in the house. Um, so that way it just would be one more thing to kind of mess with you um, on fight day. Did you win that fight? That fight actually lost us a, a, a controversial decision. Very controversial. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the eventual winner was a big country Roy Nelson who – Really, would he should have steamrolled through the tournament um, because he was a champion from another organization. Um, Justin gave him easily his toughest fight um, of the tournament, um, and and I, I said back then I was like, "They UFC made a mistake not signing you and D'Amico Rogers. I thought you two had a lot of talent, but it turned out to be kind of a gift." Tell us about the time after the Ultimate Fighter where you know. Justin Wren really came into himself. Hmm. Yeah. So not winning the show was actually uh, like what you just said. It was a real gift. Um, I, I thought it was the worst thing in the world at that time. Um, I went through a heavy, heavy drug addiction, um, got hooked on, uh, prescription drugs, uh, Oxycontin and, um, uh, codone, the quick release. Um, and yeah, so got to the point to where, so bad, I got a voicemail after an eight-week-long drug binge, and it was from my uh, my best friend, and he said, I can't believe you missed my wedding. Um, I can't believe my best man didn't show up. Hmm. It was because I was that far gone on the drugs. Um, I was hitchhiking from uh, one drug house to another um, in Colorado at that time, and that just shook me uh, to my core, you know. Um, I was... Uh, there's a saying, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And so I was just uh, going through the same depression. I never dealt with it from childhood, uh, being bullied. I, then I put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to be this guy. Uh, my childhood dream, be this fighter. I've become this fighter. Some reason it didn't fulfill me like I'd hoped. Um, mm -hmm. fell, fell into the drug addiction. Um, and then... I don't know. I just had this moment of clarity for me. It was my, for me personally, it was my relationship with God. I just say God came in and loved the hell out of me. <laughs> and, uh, and 
after that, it was, I wanted to bless people and I wanted to, uh, love on them in, in a practical, tangible, real way that people need. Um, and so had my head on a swivel looking to make a difference. Um, went to the children's hospital in Denver, became an official volunteer there, the rescue mission in Denver, uh, volunteer there, drug rehab facilities, um, youth group. Uh, I just tried to fit in wherever I could, um, and make a difference. Laid down fighting for a year and said I wasn't going to fight. I was going to, um, strengthen, uh, my life, uh, my foundation and sobriety, uh, my relationship with God. I was going to try to change who I was, um, as a, it really changed from being a depressed, drunk drug addict that literally broke every single relationship in his life. Like every relationship I had was in shambles. Um, and so I wanted to change that. Um, and then found myself 11 months into sobriety, 11 months in my faith, man. And, uh, uh, all of a sudden found myself in the Congo, uh, with the Mabuki pygmies. Um, and that was, I'd just say fate. It's my second family. Uh, love them with, with all my heart. Um, and how I even got there was pretty wild, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that changed everything for me. Tell us about how you got there. Okay. I want to know about yeah, that. Yeah, if it's pretty, if you think it's pretty wild, I want to know. Uh, it's real wild. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I had a, a time, a moment of, I don't know if it was clarity cause all of a sudden I was confused. Um, but, uh, this can sound wild. Um, so I had experimented with several different kinds of drugs, um, 11 months earlier and for six years straight, um, I had experimented with different psychedelics, um, from, acid to shrooms to all sorts of stuff. Um, and, uh, and then 11 months sober, I say a prayer saying, just said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? That's all I said. Um, but I really needed to hear something because honestly, uh, 11 months without a job, I was, uh, I was broke as a joke, you know, and I, um, uh, didn't have much going for me. Um, I mean, I had the volunteering, and that had been really fulfilling my life and giving me a sense of purpose and passion. Uh, but it was more of a shotgun approach where I was just doing whatever I could whenever didn't really have a clear focus. Um, and when I said that prayer, what do you want me to do with my life? Um, it, it'll sound crazy, but I had a movie in my mind. It was a vision. Um, and I was in the forest and I didn't know where I was, but I was walking down a footpath. The footpath was barely wider than my foot. Um, and I'm walking and I'm walking. All of a sudden I hear drumming, a very distinct drumming. Um, then I keep walking and I'm clearing like thickets and vines out of the way. Um, and there, then I hear this very distinct singing. Uh, it was like a tonal language, almost like yodeling. Um, and I break into this clearing and I meet a man, the first guy I meet, he's coughing and he's coughing and I see his ribs poking out. Um, and I knew that he was sick and I knew that he was hungry. And then I see these other people. I knew that they're thirsty. They didn't have clean water, that they're oppressed, that the people groups around them actually enslaved them. I just knew it in the vision that these people were slaves. And then uh, the thing that wrecked me the most was that they felt forgotten, that that was their 
identity that they thought of themselves as the forgotten people. Um, mm. And so I wrote that down. Um, well, actually, I came out of that vision, and man, I'm a dude, I'm a fighter, whatever. But uh, and at that time in my life, I hadn't cried very much. Um, maybe as a kid, I did when getting bullied. But this, uh, I cried a little puddle of tears. I don't know if you call that a puddle, but whatever it was, it was, it was yeah. about a silver dollar or bigger little cookie size. Um, and I just cried and cried. Um, I felt nuts for like three days, but I wrote down on a piece of paper forgotten and underneath that hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, enslaved. Um, and, uh, three days later, I'm still chewing on this and I'm thinking, who are these people? Where are these people? Um, for me, I had thought of, the jungle and the forest, uh, being in the Amazon in Brazil, uh, or India or Asian culture or countries, some Asian countries. Uh, I didn't even think about, um, the a rainforest in Africa. I thought of the Savannah, I thought of the desert, <laughs> but I didn't think of the second largest rainforest being in Africa. Um, but the people in my vision had dark skin. Um, so I was real confused. I was thinking Brazil. I was thinking, I'm like, well, where's this tribe uh, from? And they, it seems like they're in the wrong place. I mean, I, in my head, I thought, did I have some sort of psychotic Someone break? slipped me something. Yeah. Am yeah. I making something up? Is this crazy? Am I crazy? Uh, did I have some sort of mental lapse? What happened? Um, and I meet a guy named Caleb Bislow. Um, and Jim, who's listening in with us right now, uh, he met Caleb last weekend. Um, and, uh, we got to take him and show him the building that I was in when I had the vision. Um, and I told Caleb this vision and Caleb just kind of starts nodding his head and, uh, and I stop and I go, what? And he goes, those are the Mabuti pygmies. And I'm like, what? And, uh, he goes, I, I said, who? And he said, they're in the Congo. And at that time I'm like, where, where's the Congo? Right. Um, he goes, I've, I've been there. I saw him last year. If there's anyone that's forgotten, it's Shit. Mabuti Pygmies. And then, uh, he said, I'm supposed to go in three and a half weeks from now. Um, and he told me how the rebels took over the airport they're flying into, how he was leading a team of four people, uh, that they're going to do a scouting trip, assess the needs of the Pygmies, um, that they were enslaved, that they were thirsty, that they were hungry. Um, that they were sick, that, that, that all this stuff that I was in, that was in my vision, like it's happening, it's there and it's them. Uh, and I thought that was wild. And he told me that the team he was leading all backed out, that there was three, uh, people, uh, going with them. They were all husbands. They were all fathers. He said that, uh, they backed out because the U S state department said no American should travel to Congo for any reason. Um, and the worst of it was where they were going. And so Caleb told me though that the the day that um that I told him the vision his wife asked, "Hey, you really need to think about this trip. Like I don't want you going alone. Um but if if something happens, you feel like you're really supposed to go, like let me know." And he goes, "Look, Justin, if you had a vision, if you go, I'll go." Um and I thought this guy's crazy. Uh he sounds wild. Um, but, uh, we told him, I told another friend named Colin, all of a sudden, three and a half weeks later, we take a trip to the Congo. Uh, we land on a grass runway, uh, that literally was being cleared, uh, by the villagers, um, uh, by machete. 
um, they were mowing the grass for us in the runway uh, with machetes sure. uh, as we're circling the runway. <laughs> um, and the pilot's saying, I, I, we might have to turn around and go back to Uganda because if I don't have enough fuel to get back or to take off, um, then I don't know if they have fuel in this village. Uh, so um, or they definitely didn't have the fuel yeah. that they needed. Uh, so, yeah, we land. We go out into the forest. And Caleb and Colin both know the vision I had. And we're walking down a footpath, footpaths barely wider than our feet. We hear drumming. Then we hear singing. Then we come into a clearing. And all of a sudden, I meet a man. And the first man I meet has tuberculosis. And he's coughing. And he's coughing. And uh, later that day, the chief pulls us to the side. And I'm just blown away. Caleb and Colin grab my shoulder. And uh, they're like, this is your vision. This is your vision. <laughs> And, uh, and it was amazing, but I didn't know what to do with that, how to digest it. And, uh, the chief pulled me to the side and said, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. Sure. And whenever, yeah, whenever he said that I was, uh, I was blown away. Um, and I knew that something, something special just happened. Um, and something very unique and rare that doesn't happen often, um, happened. They ended up adopting me in. I mean, Caleb and Colin are there. Um, they end up adopting me into their village, into their people group, into their tribe. Um, they gave me the name Efeosa Mabutimangbo. And uh, Efeosa means the man who loves us. Um, my next trip, it was Mabutimangbo, which means the big pygmy. <laughs> <laughs> that's where it comes yeah, from. Yeah, that's where it okay. comes from. Uh, the average height for the Mabuti pygmies is only four foot seven. Um, wow. so me walking in there, vanilla gorilla type guy, <laughs> uh, they named me the big pygmy. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, man, it's, it's been wild. Uh, I haven't shared that story often. Um, but, uh, it's how I got there. It's, uh, was the, the origin story. Um, yeah. and, uh, from there they become my second family and, uh, I've lived there for over a year and a half. Um, lived there for a year at one time, wow. um, and we did land, water, and food initiatives uh, for Fight for the Forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, that's the organization we have is Fight for the Forgotten. So if anyone wants to check it out, it's fightfortheforgotten.org. Uh, and yeah, we're trying to. Uh, we have three initiatives. The first one's the Pygmies. Second one's the Thirsty, and the third one's our stateside initiative, which we start in October. Um, and that's uh, bullying prevention campaigns and curriculums that we equip martial arts academies uh, to implement. Um, and so that's kind of my life story was getting bullied. Um, the pygmies are the most bullied people on earth. Anthropologists right. call them the most oppressed people group. Um, and the water crisis uh, is, a, is a bully. Uh, it preys on the vulnerable, the weak. Um, 3.4 million people die every year of uh, waterborne illness, two million of them are children under the age of five years old. Uh, and so it's the biggest bully there is. Um, number one reason uh, for, for death in the developing world. Um, so, yeah, that's our mission and vision is kind of sticking close to, to home. Uh, the vision statement of uh, Fight for the Forgotten is overcoming oppression with overwhelming opportunity. Uh, we think... Um, Charity is okay, but opportunity is always better. And so uh, opportunity is greater than charity. And uh, so our vision, our mission statement is to uh, fight for the forgotten exists to defeat hate with love, 
to defeat hate with love. And so um, kind of two of our core principles is uh, live to love and uh, fight for people is, is kind of what we want to do. We want to live to love and fight for people as an organization. Like that's, that's our DNA. So I sense some hesitation for you to tell that story. And you probably think that some people think, you know, it's crazy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was crazy, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's just clearly God gave you this vision because it's, it's unraveled into this incredible, you know, thing where you're literally, you know, helping the lowest of the low. You know, mm. I can't think of anyone who's more oppressed. And I just think of like, you know, that there's a story to that for everyone because Every person God has given them a mission field, and how many of them have not responded for fear of it being considered, you know, something that oh, that's too weird, that's too strange. Yeah. Um, how did you overcome that? How did I overcome? How did you decide? You know what? This is a real thing. I'm going to talk to people about this. Yeah. And even even with your hesitancy, yeah. there's still bravery in that because you oh, did thanks. talk to someone. Yeah. Um, Man, for me, it was just too real. Um, it was it was too real that it like shook me to my core. Like yeah. um, honestly, whenever we broke in that clearing and I met the guy with tuberculosis, like tears just welled up in my eyes. Yeah. And when I looked out and I saw exactly the vision that had happened. I couldn't stay standing. Um, I had to go into like a squatting position where I put my hands on my face and my elbows on my knees, and I was just taking it all in. I was overwhelmed. Uh, honestly, I was overwhelmed. And so, uh, I remember, I remember Caleb and Colin being so much more amped for me than I was because I was just so like overwhelmed. Okay. This problem's way too big and I'm way too small. Uh, what am I going to do about it? Um, and then whenever the chief pulled me to the side and said, Hey, Justin, um, we don't have a voice. Uh, can you help us have one? I just remember saying yes, um, because that was something practical that I could do. Um, we didn't think we could promise land, which has been 3,000 acres of land now. Uh, we didn't think we could do water at that time. Uh, we didn't think we could do farming initiatives. Uh, but whenever he said, can you help us have a voice? We don't have one. Um, that's when my spirit just, I said yes with my voice, but my spirit was like screaming it. Like, yeah, we can do that. Like that's something we can do. We can give you a voice um, to your your suffering, to your your plight. Like we can we can bring attention on that. Um, and then, so to answer your question, like how did I start getting confidence in in sharing the story? Uh, Caleb and Colin told more people than I did at the beginning uh, because they were blown away. But whenever I started seeing traction take place oh my gosh, like here's some land. This shouldn't be happening right now. And we're able to get, instead of 30 acres of land, we're able to get 247 acres of land. Uh, we might be able to do that again oh, and again and again. And 10 times over, we're able to get uh, land back legally uh, for the pygmies. That's the first time in their history they ever owned land. Sure. Um, yeah. So to have confidence in, okay, I had this vision so that this could happen with the land, so that this could happen with the wells. I helped drill the first 13 water wells, uh, was trained by a guy that came over from Uganda um, and, and helped train me on how to drill wells. He had already drilled over 100 wells. He came, lived with me, Ugandan guy that had been a child soldier in the Lord's Resistance Army. He was a child soldier, abducted, 
um, and he had a miracle story. He taught me how to drill wells. The team that I helped start there has now drilled 77 wells. Um, so with every win comes more confidence in kind of the original story of like, this is what happened and this is why it happened so that these beautiful, amazing things could happen and take place. Um, so I've started to gain more and more confidence in it. Um, but at the beginning, whenever I felt like, uh, I felt like the problem was way too big. This was the visual I had. This is this raging storm in this mighty ocean. <laughs> and what am I going to do about it? If I spent my whole life trying to help here, it would be like trying to take an eyedropper and empty the ocean with an eyedropper. And how, how could I, how could I ever do that? Yeah. Um, but now it seems like there's just been buckets, uh, that we're scooping out. Uh, I mean, it's still a massive problem. Uh, but we've seen 1500 people transition out of a life of actual slavery and into a, a life of freedom. Um, and so to, to see that take place, um, having the land we buy back from the oppressors, uh, doing water, um, on both sides uh, to where their oppressors are also getting access to clean water for the first time that changes their lives. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it can literally save the lives of their children. And they know that um, it can help their children go to school for the first time because uh, they were being dedicated to, you can't go to school. You have to collect water. Um, so to be able to bring in clean water, it's like, Oh, that frees up the wife to go to work. That frees up the kids to go to school. Um, it, Water changes everything. Land before that, they have to have the land before they can have the water. Then they have to have food and be able to sustain themselves. But whenever they have those farming initiatives, they're able to feed themselves for the first time. Also take that to the market, and then they're able to uh, uh, to um, sell that. And from that, they will send their kids to school, buy school clothes, buy books, whatever it is they need. So that's been pretty amazing. Yeah, the, the, <clears throat> the story is just. Um it's nothing short of inspiring. I think one of your big avenues that I don't know if you even talk on this though, but just from listening to you talk about this is that man, just encouraging people to follow their heart. You know, the yeah. voice of God is on everyone and everyone's mission field is going to look different. I was telling some friends about you prior to this and they're like, Oh gosh, I'm doing nothing with my life. But everyone's mission field looks different. Yeah. The one guy I was telling, he's got three kids. He's wiped out. His mission field might just be his children. And maybe that's what God has in store for him. Um, not everyone is a Justin Wren, but um, I think, yeah, that could be another avenue for you, is just encouraging people to, to listen to the heart of God and to yeah. not be afraid of that voice, not to think, oh, this is too weird. People are going to think I'm insane. Um, yeah. You know, and to step out on that. I think, I think we all can live with hearts on fire and lives on purpose. Mm -hmm. And so what is that passion uh, that that brings us alive and what is our purpose um, that we will live and leave a legacy with. And so hearts on fire, lives on purpose. And how can we really drive that home to where we get to live it out? And so it's one thing to talk about it. Um, and it's another thing to live it. Uh, and so what I mean by that is for me, my mission field was, and is uh, the pygmies right. and now is, is the bullied here stateside. Um, but for that gentleman, it's his, his kiddos, you know, how, how can he be a passionate dad that, that, that 
his purpose as a father leaves a legacy through the lives of his kids. Yep. Um, and, and that's going to outlive himself, you know? Um, I think we all can live this life to outlive ourselves, um, create something, uh, or invest something into our children's lives, some principles, some values, um, some, some personality traits of like, Hey, you're going to be one that stands up and does good. Um, and, and investing that teaching that trait into our children, um, to where, to where they're little world changers, to where they, they, they make a difference to where they live that out. Um, I just, I just think, yeah, we can all make a difference, um, and live a life that leaves a legacy. Yeah. And it, it's, and the anti-bullying campaign, I've noticed that that's kind of become a, a big thing. And that's a, your story. I've listened to it on the, you know, on different podcasts and, you know, heart wrenching stuff. And, um, but I think it's even more relevant today for young kids because you could still catch a beating as a kid, but now everyone's going to know about it on social media, right. you know? Um, and so what, what, what inspired you to kind of take this on uh, yeah. now? Well, I've been wanting to for the last six or seven years. Um, now finally get to step into that. So, yeah. uh, man, it almost makes me just want to smile just uh, knowing we're going to do something this year. Uh, but I think the martial arts community can be the one to stand up and speak out and really lead the way uh, in, in anti-bullying and be uh, a source in the community, uh, kind of a pillar of hope or light and love um, uh, to where people know they could go there to get help. Um, reason number one was it, hit, it hits home because uh, yeah. I'm 13 years old, clinically diagnosed with depression, wanted to take my own life, attempted to take my own life. Um, and number two would be uh, ah, the pygmies are so bullied. And number three would be looking around and, okay, so I'll, I'll share the story. My mom uh, knows a mother down in Texas and um, my parents are childhood uh, sports photographers. So like uh, they take all the team photos, all the individual shots of, you know, the kid with a baseball bat over his shoulder or yeah, a yeah. soccer mm-hmm. ball underneath their foot or whatever it is. Like my parents take like 100,000 uh, kiddos photos in DFW every year. Well, one of the kids they would take the photos of, my mom actually started to know his mom, and then they needed a, uh, us to make a memorial uh, photo uh, of the son. Um, he had taken his own life. Uh, oh, gosh. He was told every day at school. I was told this at school. It wasn't every day, but I was told this numerous times. You should just kill yourself. Um, and I remember the battle that that had me have at 13 years old. Well, this little guy took his life because he was told relentlessly, you should take your life. Um, he hung himself with a belt at the young age of nine years old. Nine Unreal. years old. Nine. nine years old. I was just out in California talking with some school administrators in L.A. They had an eight-year-old do it recently, an eight-year-old take his own life. Um, so our, our curriculum, it raises awareness about, about bullying but really, I would say it's character development. Um, it's uh, it's called Heroes in Waiting. 
And so we, in the anti-bullying one we might call, we are human or shield each other, something to where we, we stand up, we protect one another. Um, but heroes in waiting really shows that there's three paths in this life. And you can take the first path, which would be uh, in the, to the left maybe, and that's the to be a perpetrator of evil or a perpetrator of wrongdoing. Like you can be the bully um, or you can take the other path, which is probably the most often taken path. And that is the one of indifference, uh, to be inactive, to turn a blind eye and to not take action, um, to just pretend like you don't see it. Um, and the problem with that one is that most people think being indifferent or, or just staying out of it. I'm just going to stay out of it. If you see it, you're now involved most people think you're not involved if you're around it. You are. You're, you're, you're involved, and it might not have chosen you. Or sorry, you might not have chose it, but it's chosen you. And uh, now it's time to take some sort of action. But doing nothing is taking action. It's, it's, it's choosing nothing. And uh, so I think what people need to know about that is you're not an innocent bystander. You're a silent supporter. You're supporting the, the act of bullying that's taking place if you're if you're around it. Um, if you're chuckling, you're a supporter. But even if you're just acting like you don't see it, that bully is taking that and and now takes that as some sort of support. That's what the stats show. Mm. Um, and so there's there's three paths. It's the perpetrator of wrongdoing. It's the act of in, indifference or you can stand up and speak out. You can do something. You can be a hero in waiting. Uh, you can choose that path, and you can do something. Oh, when it comes to bullying, they say that there's an 87% chance that the first time you stand up and say one thing, the bullying, the act of bullying shuts down in five seconds. Five seconds, almost a 9 out of 10 chance. The second time you have to say something, it's a 93% shot. Hmm. That it shuts down in five seconds, and it's it's saying simple things such as, "Hey, that's not cool. Stop that," or "Hey, uh, talking to the kid being bullied. Hey, come on over here, sit with us." Yeah, you know, just including them, uh, and and it's it's so. I would encourage anyone to go look up this YouTube video. Just type in. I, I don't even know what it, it would be. Maybe it's called the Bullied Burger. But it's a, a burger. It's a Burger King um, video, and it's uh, if you just do Burger King bullying, mm-hmm. and uh, it's gone viral. And it's 12% of customers said something whenever a kid was being bullied right in the center of the restaurant. 12% of people said something, um, but. Ninety-seven percent of people said something when their burger was bullied. Whenever <laughs> oh, uh, so, what the a, a bullied burger is basically a guy just punched a hole in the middle of the burger and and served it that way. Well, ninety-seven percent of of customers complained about their burger, but only twelve percent stood up for the kid being pushed around, having food thrown on him or drinks oh, spilled on him, mm. uh, or and being made fun of right there in the center of the restaurant. Um, so I think I think what I want to encourage people to do is, hey, let's take action. Let's not just be, quote unquote, innocent bystanders, because really what we're being is silent supporters of the act of bullying. So let's not choose indifference like most of us do. Um, there's a story. There's a there's a great TED Talk video that's called. Uh, uh, oh, what's it called? The 
psychology of evil, the psychology of evil. And, uh, there's an incredible hero story that happens at the end of it. And it's basically, uh, this, this man, uh, he has his two or three children with him and they're young children and a person falls on the subway. It's the New York city subway hero story. And basically, um, he, a man falls onto the tracks doesn't say if he jumps onto the tracks or if he just stumbles and falls on the tracks. But the man, there's hundreds of people watching, or at least a hundred people watching. They're all getting ready. It's busy New York City. Someone could have jumped down on the subway and helped save this man or pulled him out. Uh, but everyone's watching. It's the man with at least two children, maybe three children, that gives his children off to the bystanders. He jumps onto the tracks. He covers the man. And the train comes and just goes right over him. Uh, he ends up saving not one life, but or he saved both of their lives. They, they were 26 inches tall whenever he's on top of them. The train's clearing was 26.5 inches tall. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. Uh, there was a half-inch clearing. And this man, some reason, something inside of him, the, the psychology of, I don't know, being a hero and waiting, um, that might be his only chance in this lifetime to be a, an actual hero. But basically, we're all ordinary people, but we are capable of extraordinary things. So how do we tap into that? How do we jump into that? How do we grab hold of those opportunities whenever we, how do we just walk through life having our head on a swivel Mm -hmm. and okay, here's a guy with a flat tire. Maybe I know how to change that flat tire better than him or her, or maybe he ran out of gas. Maybe I can get out of my car and help push this person's vehicle. How do we teach kids that at the martial arts academies and do like eight to 12 weeks of mat chat topics where we sit around the mats, we share a story we encourage one another and we say, how, how can we be the difference maker at our, our public or private school? Um, so that's, that's kind of our bullying campaign and curriculum. And really what we're doing is we're going to do a, a 10 week, eight to 10 week, um, fundraise or sorry, eight week long fundraising tournament, uh, where we do a crowdfunding campaign with a hundred martial arts academies. Our goal is to raise $4,200 per academy. Um, and I love the Swahili proverb. It's, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that. And so we're, we're uniting the martial arts community so that we can go far with anti-bullying. Instead of just doing it one off here, one off here, all alone, we have this curriculum that's going to unite everybody in the martial arts community, at least a hundred martial arts communities, um, uh, around the country. And, if we raise $4,200 with each one of them, uh, we're going to make a difference here and there. And so we're going to make a difference in our own community with a bullying curriculum uh, that, that we'll equip our own academy with. And then the fundraising of $4,200, that's going to go drill a well for a community in need that doesn't have access to clean water. Um, and so we're going to make a difference here and there. And the first place prize, uh, we're going to redeck out their, their, uh, their gym. It's going to get brand new zebra mats, uh, which are like the best mats in martial arts. Um, they're going to centuries coming in. So zebra and century martial arts, they're our sponsors. Um, and we're going to just deck it out to where the, the first place gets, uh, the, the fight for the Friat and fundraising belt or championship belt. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> number two through 10 is going to get a trophy. 
Um, so a fight for the forgotten fundraising, like kind of trophy, like championship trophy. And then anyone that hits their goal is going to get the gold medal. So the gold medal, the gold medal, where they get a fight for the forgotten medal saying, you know, they hit their goal. Um, and they transformed a community with clean water and that they transformed their community, a martial arts community with anti-bullying. Um, and so we're, we're real stoked about it. There's going to be different prize packs for the top 10. I'm going to come out and speak at their school. Um, they're going to maybe Bellator is going to come in with a prize pack where maybe they get to be at my next fight uh, ringside. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we're going to make it fun. But that that kick starts in the middle of October. Yeah. Yeah. Super excited about that. Yeah. We're, sure. we're stoked. Yeah. We're stoked. We're, we're hoping that 100 schools come together. Um, and through that, we'll be able to change or transform the lives of 30,000 people with clean water. 30,000 people will get access to clean water for the first time. And we're hoping there'll be uh, several thousand, um, maybe tens of thousands that go through the bullying curriculum. That's fantastic. It's such a cool story. I yeah. think there's, there's so much good being done and teaching others to you know, continue that and have a legacy for that stuff. So they'll keep teaching their kids as well. Uh, you said I want to go back. You said you spent a year, a year over in Congo with the pygmies. Yeah. How was that experience? And then coming back to the states, what like what changed? Because I mean, obviously, you're spending a year outside of everything that we take for granted. Right. And then how was that mind change coming back and and just that whole experience? Yeah, I would say the level of gratitude I have is so much more now. Um, I would say I had culture shock without a doubt coming back home. Uh, I don't think anyone should do this, but some reason um, I couldn't find it in myself to sleep in a bed for three months coming back. You'd think all all you'd want after that is to to get into a bed, um, and because I, I slept on the dirt with the twi- underneath the twig and leaf huts. Um, I had a blanket, but no Mabuti Pygmy that I ever met had a blanket before. I've never met a person that owned a blanket in the Congo. Uh, Other tribes, yes, but the Pygmies, no. Um, The fire is their blanket. Um, So coming home, I was just so uh, grateful uh, for the life that I get to live. I mean, a, a Pygmy prayer almost every day is, Lord, thank you that I woke up today. Sure. Um, there. Lord, remember those who didn't wake up today and all the families out there that lost someone last night. Lord, be with us and thank you for giving us breath today, giving us air today. Lord, let us have water and food today, please. I mean, that's that's like the depth of their prayers is like just basic human rights and needs that we so often take for granted. And so... Um, yeah, I would say that that the experience though was was the the best experience of my life. Uh, it was the most fun, the deepest relationships, um, and just uh, it was work that mattered. Um, and so, uh, passion, purpose, all that through the roof. And uh, knowing that this life that I get to live is is making a difference. So there's a Swahili proverb, another one uh, that says. If you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a closed room with a mosquito. And uh, I love that one. It's it's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but after having malaria three times, almost dying yes. the first time, uh, a mosquito can make a big difference yeah. uh, in our lives. And uh, so how how can we 
live a life that makes a greater difference than than a, a stinking mosquito. And you look at it, and the most dangerous thing on earth isn't a shark or uh, or natural right. predators, right? It's not sharks, mm-hmm. it's not snakes, it's not spiders or scorpions. Stinking mosquitoes. They they take the lives of hundreds of thousands of people every year. Yeah. Um, and so if they can do that much damage in the world, how much more good can we do in the world? And so I just like to flip that around and say, man, we can, we can make a massive difference in this world. And so let's do it. Let's link arms. Let's, if we want to go fast, you know, we can go alone, but if we want to go far, let's, let's link up with, with good people and, and, and do some great things. Um, so you're an MMA fighter, or at least during that period, and then on your downtime, you lived in the jungle with pygmies. Um, what father-in-law lets you marry his daughter with that resume? <laughs> the best one. Uh, yeah, he's he's awesome. Uh, and he, him and I always dispute this fact against each other. He says his daughter grew up camping because they had a camper and uh I say it was her first time ever camping in the rainforest of the Congo because uh he he took her camping in uh in a camper that had a TV and uh glamping. Had showers glamping, <laughs> yeah. Right? glamping yeah so that that's our that's our only argument we've had with each other <laughs> is uh glamping or camping and uh but he's a he's a great man um and totally supports what we do and why we do it and uh is a donor of fight for the forgotten um which is awesome which for the month of september uh we have a dollar for dollar match um and so up to fifty thousand dollars uh we get we get matching gifts um and so it's it's a exciting month for us Mm -hmm. of september so um if anyone's watching and uh or i mean whoever's listening if if you want to give uh you could give to at fightfortheforgotten.org and whatever you give, if it's a dollar, it'll be two. If it's a hundred, it'll be two hundred dollars. So it's pretty amazing. We're stoked for that. So uh, how did you meet your wife uh, in between all? We of actually this? met online. Okay. Uh, we met online, and uh, I was living in Colorado. She was living in Texas, and then about six months later, I was living in Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. Because right? I wanted to go to school. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, enrolled at a college for about a semester, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I was close enough to her. Um, so yeah, she's she's been on this journey with me, and it's been uh, quite quite an adventure um, to yeah just see all all her support. And she was the first person I got to share the name "Fight for the Forgotten" with, and uh, she was excited. She said it was it was a great title of a of a nonprofit. So uh, she's the co-founder. Good, Emily. Good. What's been like one of the? I mean, there's going to be standout moments that you've had through this whole process. But is there one that really stands out apart from walking in and reliving the vision? Yeah. So reliving the vision. Um, I would also sum up. I don't want to get too deep in it. I, I'll, I'll cry with you guys. Um, but uh, Andy Bo was a one and a half year old boy that passed away. Um, I was cupping the back of his head whenever he took his last breath and shit. Um, and it, uh, it was one of the toughest things I've ever gone through in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then the sound of water 
clean water coming out for the first time uh, for me is the sound of giants hitting the dirt. Um, so every time uh, I've been to the Super Bowl and the World Series and the NBA Finals and UFC 100 and 200 and the Pacquiao fights and I've been to some of the greatest sporting events in the world but um, seeing land, water and food initiatives whenever those take place and have real victory in them uh, I don't know, just the sound of water hitting, splashing on the ground or filling up a jerry can uh, that's that's the sound of victory over death for me. That's the sound of a giant hitting the dirt. Um, and so also other standout moments is now getting to come back to fight. Uh, and I took five years off, and I've come back, and I've won several fights, and those are always great because whenever I win, I get to win for them and uh, grab that microphone, give them a voice, uh, bring their plight to light. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a... Uh, it's been an awesome journey. Do you have an next opponent lined up, or I don't. I'm probably going to fight in March or April. Um, <clears throat> latest, hopefully, is May. Uh, had the shoulder surgery, so getting back on the mats with you guys at Lovato's. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> Gavin's next. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's going to be um, yeah, March, April, May, and uh, don't have an opponent lined up, but it might be at Windstar Casino. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. That'd be good. Is there someone that on that roster? Because it's, it's, it's pretty loaded now. It is, is loaded. Like Heavy a fight with Fedor, would that be like the, that be awesome. the pinnacle? I would or? Love that. Yeah. That would be the pinnacle for me because he was my childhood hero, really. Uh, I was thinking of uh, not fighting Fedor because I didn't think that would happen, me being a kid and him being the champion. Right, time. right. Uh, but for him to be fighting still and the legend that he is, I'd love to be able to say I, I scrapped with a legend. <laughs> uh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so, how long have you been at Lovato's exactly? I, I always say it's it's a shame. It's almost criminal that more people in Oklahoma City probably know the starting right tackle of the Sooners, but not the name Rafael Lovato Jr. Yeah, I was He's one truly of those a star. I had no idea who he was until he told me. Yeah, I mean, again, it, people know the third string small forward on the Thunder. And they don't know this guy who's truly a star. He's, just, he's a hidden star for Oklahoma City. Everybody yeah. should know his name. Uh, what's it been like he there? Should, he should be on This Is Oklahoma. He is going to and be. Yeah, that's 100%. awesome. And then, uh, and then we should get him some love for however, whatever the Thunder on. Yeah, I agree. He should be on right there because he's, he's, uh, he's yeah, won the NBA Finals of Jiu-Jitsu. You know? Right. And, uh has has done it multiple times over. So and one of uh, many few Americans. Am I right by saying that? Yeah, I don't think right. there's an American that's won two. And he's I think won. BJ Penn. He's um, won one. I think, I think there's he, four or five to ever win the gold. Yeah, I mean, I, there's so many different divisions and whatnot, but very clearly, Lovato is heads and shoulders above anyone else, any other American. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's it's a real treasure to have him here in Oklahoma City uh, doing what he's doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I've been there for a year and eight months or so, and uh, and yeah, he was one of the reasons, the big reasons, I came to Oklahoma and uh, just be able to learn under that that samurai type of guy uh, <laughs> that is the warrior that he is and the teacher that he is. See, a lot of people can be not a lot of people. It's rare to be great at your sport. It's even more rare to be great at your sport and be a great teacher of that sport. Mm. Um, and so some guys are really gifted to be a coach. Some guys are really gifted to be an athlete. And then there's a very rare few that can do both. And, uh, he's, he's one of those guys. He's the best instructor I've ever had. 
Huh. Um, so not just the best uh, technician, but but the best teacher. Do you want to have a, a gym here one time, sometime in the future? I don't know. That'd be competing with Raphael, and I don't want to yeah. do that. No, uh, I've I've thought of that before, but I think my goals are are outside the sport than inside. Um, I mean, my my fighting goals are within the sport, but then after that, I think it's transitioning into full on hundred uh, percent fight for the forgotten. I'm just in awe over you. Like, it's fantastic. And I'm going to go back to what you said about, like, you know, your mission and your, it doesn't have to be big, it's small. Because, I mean, listening to Justin's story, you can feel extremely not very important, right? After, you know, everything that you've done and, you know, back to the, you know, the mosquito um, comment. Uh, that's, it's amazing. It really is. And I think a lot of people should know a lot more about you and the story. Um, and you know, through the powers of social media, we can do that. Um, and regardless of if people listen to this, if six people listen to it, then I hope they all share it because it's amazing. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I have um, I have a true blessing, and I call them the dream team uh, behind me. Two of them are sitting in the room right now, and my wife Emily uh, and a second father figure to me, uh, Jim Stewart. His wife Susan is like uh, they're like mom and dad to, to Emily and I, our Oklahoma mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't do it without uh, them, without Kelly Masters, who's been on this podcast before, um, without Mike Slack. He might be a guy you guys need to have on, my business manager. Uh, but he is a great mover and shaker in Oklahoma. Um, Star Space 46, mm-hmm. you guys have heard yeah. of that. He's a partner in that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been surrounded by an incredible team of Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahomans and they ask people ask me why'd you move to Oklahoma I'm like well my wife and I moved there because my sports agents there my business managers there our spiritual mom and dad are there um, and then incredible companies like Jasco Lovato Rafael Lovato yeah. Jr. is there mm-hmm. uh, the list just goes on and on awesome uh, before we wrap up is there a call to action you'd like to plug anything and then just kind of give our listeners a you know the uh, the instructions of what's next. Yeah, so I guess a call to action is within the month of September, we have that dollar-for-dollar dollar match, and so uh, people can give at fightfortheforgotten.org. If you're a martial arts academy, if you are a martial artist and you're interested in that, we have a crowdfunding campaign you can go on to. Uh, at fightfortheforgotten.org, you can select Heroes in Waiting, um, and then you can... Uh, uh, start your own crowdfunding campaign as a team, and we're going to have a competition to where uh, the top ten academies get decked out with some pretty awesome stuff. Uh, so we're we're excited about that. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the time, um, Justin. It's been amazing. Gavin, thank you for being on. Emily, thank you for allowing this. And Jim, again, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Uh, I hope our listeners really enjoy the story, and and I hope this isn't the last time that we uh, that we meet. So really appreciate the time and. I'm excited to see the future and then just keep in touch and, and see what, you know, the good things that that's going to continue to happen. So, Hey, thanks brother. This is I awesome. appreciate both of you. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you later. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, 
follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Mike Hearn and Ian Weston. Mixed by Alan Brown with music by Chad Duro.